Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Clevy, your host, and with me today is Caleb Wells. Hey, Caleb. Hey, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. It's uh, you know, <laughs> middle of summer. Things are heating up, yep. so yeah, doing things outside yard work. You know, it's, it's outside yard work season. So, see, so. and that's the opposite for us. At this part of the year, you don't go outside because you step outside and you melt. <laughs> yeah. What's the temperature over there, Kayla? With heat index, it's gotten up to like 115. And it's, it's Fahrenheit, I guess. Yeah. Oh, yes. Fahrenheit. Yes. And no, no worries. Down no here, we're, we're subtropical, so we have 100% humidity most of the year. So, yeah. Are you sure 150 degrees Fahrenheit? That would be 46 uh, degrees Celsius. 115. That is, yeah. Yeah. 115, 115, yep. Yeah, yeah, that's 46 degrees Celsius. Yep. That is a temperature which I have never experienced in my life, I think. That's not actual temperature. That's just what it feels like, right? What's, yeah, what's but, air temperature? Outside, over 100, right around 100. Yeah. But Arizona's get, worse, right? Yeah. yeah. Where I'm at, when we get over 100, we're like dry, you know, like 15% humidity. So that's actually decent. Yeah, that's not too bad. But right now, we're at 100. 70, okay, because 100 degrees Fahrenheit, I did experience 38 degrees Celsius, but that was very extreme a couple of years ago. I remember driving and coming back from holiday by car, and we said, like, look at the temperature outside. It's incredible. I mean, sitting in the AC, like 38. I've never seen that before. Wow. <laughs> by the right, way, for, guys, so, uh, our guest, yeah. yeah. Our listeners, yeah. For our listeners, that other voice you hear is Dennis Duman. Welcome back to the show, Dennis. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I'm honored. Yeah. We had you on episode 91 talking about fluid insertions last year. So that was a great episode. So thanks for coming back. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, absolutely my honor. Yeah. And I'm actually in the Netherlands in case somebody wonders, like, uh, what's the comparison? So that's uh, cool. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So uh, I think what are we going to talk about today? What is open source? Mm-hmm. What do you What do you actually Yeah, know a, a little source? bit. Do you know uh, anything, Dennis? Of open source and odds and ends. You know, I've heard he's he's familiar with open source. Can you <laughs> fill us in? <laughs> uh, yeah, so it seems that, that, that I've built, together with a colleague, like 12 years ago, this little library. And this little library kind of became popular for some reason. Don't ask me how, because I, I never understood this whole process of becoming a popular library. But I just checked before the show notes, and we are at 162 million downloads on nougat.org. Mm. Which, if you tell other people, there's like, wow, of course, it's NuGet. So probably it's the build machines that keep downloading the same package. But still, 
quite impressive. It's a lot. I'm really proud of yeah. it. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. yeah, that's a whole lot. So, you know, I think in the last one, we talked about TDD and unit tests and how fluent assertions make that a whole lot easier. We did talk a little open source in that episode, but we really didn't dig into what makes open source work and Mm -hmm. the time investment and all the stuff that goes around it. And so we figured we we do a bit of a deeper dive into that because on top of the the downloads, you also recently got sponsored by a company. And so we figured we could discuss what it takes to maintain an open source project and you know how sponsorships can make a huge difference. Yeah, true. Well, that's a great topic, actually, because uh, maintaining open source software is actually getting more complicated with the more downloads, the more contributors you have, which is kind of weird because you would expect if you have more contributors, then you have to do less work. But it's it's kind of like a real project. The more people try to you know produce pull requests that you have to review and, and judge yeah. and understand and compare, it gets more it gets more complicated, it gets more work, but also introduces more responsibility. So I guess we'll cover some of this as well today yeah yeah because i'm sure when you put first put fluent assertions out there you thought it was just you know you just put it out there and just let people play with it and maybe do a little work on it here and there and then it's just kind of caught on and, and yeah. here we are yeah you know how many years later and 12 or 13 yeah and i haven't actually created any uh graph or like to see how it evolved over time like is it actually linear is it is it exponential? Is it something in between? Mm. I should have done. I can probably go back to all the LinkedIn posts where I proudly said like, you know, 50, I remember 50 million because my employer sent me like uh, some balloons and a present to my home address. Uh-huh. And that was during COVID. It was during COVID because I remember I was sitting in the living room. I didn't have my um, little workplace. So that must be somewhere two years ago. So just imagine the project exists for 12 years. So the first 10 years... It was 50 million downloads, and now, like two years later, we are at 162 million. So, yeah, it's not linear, apparently. It's not linear. So, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's a lot of work, absolutely. I'm happy that uh, since, um, I think, for a couple of years, three or four years, I have uh, Jonas Nirup, who lives in Denmark, uh, helping me out. And yeah, I mean, it, it was never about the money, of course. It's it's just, you know, something that I spend a lot of time on. I use it in my daily job every day. And it's just really cool to see other people use it. And I think that's that's also very valuable because, as I said, it's not about the money, but it does help me as a person in the community. I mean, it's not. I've met a lot of people. Like as I said, I was this week at a conference in Nuremberg, in Germany, and people really come to come to me and you know thank me for the work I've been doing on it. And that's like, wow, And it, it happens a lot these days, but I still remember when this happened the first time or when I discovered that somebody actually wrote a blog post about that. That makes me feel like, oh, wow, somebody actually cared enough about it to write a blog post. And then somebody started creating a pluralsight training. And like, really? Why would anybody create a pluralsight <laughs> training about something so trivial? But yeah, at some point, there's a, there's, there's this, I don't know, this, this threshold or tipping points where it's more like yeah yeah okay i know a lot of people use it and i'm happy to hear that people are happy with it i get kudos but the sponsorship that we got uh, this march that was a new thing 
that was absolutely a new thing. I was really awed by it. Like, why would Amazon or the AWS part of Amazon actually, and I'm supposed to be very open about it. They didn't ask anything for a return, by the way, just for the record. So they didn't ask me to put their logo anywhere um, anywhere on the website or mention it continuously. But obviously, since we were so proud about the fact that they would sponsor us, it's a one-time thing, but still, I definitely put the logo on the website. Because, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it was really like a milestone in the, in the project. Even so before getting back. sponsored, are you are you yeah, are you still glad that you made it uh, open source? You never go, you know, if I would have just charged like five or ten bucks a piece, you know. <laughs> Let me say, my wife reminds me of this quite often. If only, and like a lot of people actually do that, like if only you would get one cent per download or something. And to be honest, last year or some or the year before, I have been discussing with some folks. In the community, like, what could you do to monetize your open source development? But it's quite hard. Mm. Um, this week, I saw a tweet from uh, Hadi Hahari from JetBrains. She was saying, like, why is it so difficult for companies to pay for open source? Because, yeah, I use open source every day in my job, everywhere. And the funny thing is, if you if you want to get a license for something like uh, Telerik, like the UI library, then you can go to your manager and your manager will go to procurement and they will get a license for it. They'll ask you, how many lives do you need? And these things, I don't know how much they cost these days, I guess 2,000 euros or something. But if you ask them, like, I, I love Git Kraken, I want to use Git Kraken and I, I want a license for that. Like it's 50 euros or something or $50, I don't know exactly. Mm-hmm. Then it's so hard because either it looks almost like they don't, they don't want to pay by credit card. So they want to have an invoice. And then because it's such a low value, like a low price, for them, apparently, it's not about the money. It's more like they have to manage another tool somewhere in their system that needs to be tracked. And that makes it a bit hard to get that. Because there's plenty of open source that I, I wish the company would support. You know, and it's, it's, it's not actually that thing, interesting yeah. because my company is, is in a position where they're coming from a different perspective. So we've used a lot of open source in the past. And yeah. I've been with my current company for a year now. Mm-hmm. I made it a year. Sean's <laughs> like, you've actually been in a place a year? You stayed there that long? No, but we're trying to get away from open source. And the reason oh, wow. is, Interesting. Well, well, so here's the thing, right? We have a number of Angular apps. And I think this is, this is one of the things that bothers them about open source is, yeah, you can trust the Angular code from Google, right? Because they've got mm-hmm. hundreds or thousands of engineers or developers working on it, whatever, right? But there are dependencies that Angular has, like you said, that were written by someone somewhere, some open source tooling. And my company is getting more and more concerned about security and support and things of that nature. And they felt like... Which is fair. uh, Yeah. Well, and they feel like the more open source you use, the more susceptible you are. And then on the flip side, so here's a good example, right? Identity server, doing day now, yeah, right? They're no longer open source, right? It's up to a certain limit. And for us, we would have to pay. And they actually... Same for, same for us, by the way, actually. Okay. So they, they liked that change, actually, because they felt like if we're paying for a product, then you're basically guaranteeing us that it does what it's supposed to do, and we're going to have support at some level, and there's more of an onus on the developers to to do their due diligence. And that's not to say that open source developers don't, right? But you can't call up an open source developer or email them and say, hey, you know, we're having this issue getting this installed in their system and running and, and expect a response, right? So well, that's, that's why I think I think one of the best compromises for open source is have the, the product be free 
but pay for mm-hmm. support. You know, so that, that way the developers, you know, they can make some money. You know, when people are really using it seriously and they need help and support, you know, they'll pay for it. But those people that just want to use open source and, and they're fine with doing it on their own, I think, you know, that's a good way to monetize, but still have the product out there for free for people that want to use it. It's interesting that you say that. So first of all, I'm actually 15 years at my company, just to put it in perspective, which is like significantly longer than any of my prior jobs. You're right. And indeed, if the company, if you want, if you need to pay for it, you probably even have the, the law behind that. So if, if you have to pay for a product, you can also expect certain things. I don't know how it works with, you know, you, you buy a product that's being built in Europe and then, you know, how does U.S. law apply to that? I have no clue. I'm not a I'm not a lawyer, but you write in a certain way. If it, it, on the other hand, if like if I look at my own the client that I'm currently working for, I introduced together with my um, co-architect there like open source consumption guidelines to try to kind of protect for that. And what we say is that you can use open source that uses certain licenses. You know, there's a there's a short uh, white list of things you can use because there's a bunch of licenses which are risky, and of course. We don't want to have to ship the source code of the product that we build, which we sell to oil and gas companies. But one of the other things is that you can only use open source that either is maintained by a large group of people or which source code is so well written and so well documented that we're perfectly okay to maintain ourselves. So it's not like you're using something for free. You're using code that's written by somebody else. But in the end... We are going to be responsible for that. If anything, if there's a bug and we cannot rely on the people behind the project to fix that, then it's up to us to fix it. And we should be able to do that. We should be able to understand the code. So whenever you use something, you have to look at. We also look at the dependencies of that project. And I know that in the net space, it's a lot more controllable. With NPM, it's like horrible. You use one package and you get like 150 transient dependencies. It's much more scarier. But there we apply the same rule. To help us handle vulnerabilities, we have a couple of things to support that. First of all, if you go to the repo on GitHub, you already see that there's any known vulnerabilities because GitHub will scan it for you. We ourselves are using Black Duck. So Black Duck scans all the uh, NuGet, and NPM, and Docker containers to see if there's any known vulnerabilities, and we have to address them. You know, if there's something wrong, if we use something that is uh, using the wrong license, because, yeah, in the end, if you have big teams or lots of different teams contributing to the same code base, accidentally including a particular dependency is, is very easy. Right. So we control that. And if there's something like a license that is flagged or if there's a known vulnerability, we are required to change that, to update the package or get rid of the package or do something with that, which helps. And of course, my own project, Fluent Assertions, is not used in production. It's a tool. It's a library used in a development pipeline. So the risks are, of course, much lower, which makes it a bit easier. Now, if I may also comment on the whole support thing, Mm. Yes, uh, Sean, you're right. You will not be able to call me during the night saying there's something wrong. Yes, there's plenty of issues that people report. Some are real issues. We try to address them as quick as possible using a hotfix release. Some are just, you know, like niche things. Sometimes we just decide not to fix them. But we do have, and I kind of, it kind of was modeled by somebody else that I saw that on GitHub. You have, we use GitHub sponsors, a couple of tiers that say, you know, if you really want this to be fixed, this is the sponsorship tier that you can use to get us to put all effort on that, which is still no guarantee because I have a day job, I have family, I do projects or presentations, but at least it makes sure that there's an incentive for me or Jonas to fix this ASAP, which could be a couple of days. 
Mm. And finally, since it's open source, you could also fix it yourself. You know, you right. could actually create a pull request, fix the problem, because releasing for us is just a matter of setting a re- creating a release on GitHub and everything else happens automatically in our build pipeline. So, yeah. Sean's yeah, that's had, something for like for bug fixes, things like that. that. <laughs> yeah. So for bug fixes, you know, that, that kind of works fine. But there's, there's times where they just want support. And I think, you know, if you had enough people that were on an annual support, whatever, then you could actually pay a developer you know, to do a lot of these things and answer questions. True. And, yeah. And well, out. to be fair, you can you can always hire me, uh, <laughs> me or Jonas uh, for a day to help okay. you out. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But yeah, so we do have uh, some kind of uh, sponsorship tier to get like some priority. I guess most projects, just like Fluid Associations, have Slack where you can ask questions. And it's actually interesting that I noticed the last couple of months that when people report issues or even start a discussion because they aren't sure like how something should be used, there's also other people from the community answering them. Like in the past, it was me and Jonas. But these days, I see a lot of people actually helping, you know, suggesting changes, even on Stack Overflow. Because, yeah, Stack Overflow, of course, is still an important source of information. Right. No, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. and you get the community involved and they take pride and ownership of it, so to speak, even though they're not writing the code. That's huge. Yeah, it is. I mean, I'm also very happy that I have Jonas really spending significant time on it, just like me. And I, recently, I was for my client, I was looking at a uh, headless CMS, .NET based, and it looked very promising. But it turns out that there was literally only one developer behind that. So this person was very active. So if you ask questions, you ask for support, he really did what he could do to answer it because it probably was his day job. But still, it's scary. I mean, it's a truck factor one. Mm-hmm. And if it's something that's much more than a, a library, I don't know who, who actually uh, told me the first time, but kind of, if it's a library, you use it and you can easily decide not to use it. I mean, if you, if fluent insertion dies for some reason, because I gave up and nobody's there, it's relatively easy to replace it to something else. But if you use, if you build a system based on the headless CMS and .NET and build all kinds of extensions around it, people cannot see it, but I'm drawing some holistic picture. Yeah. Then you kind of, I don't know if you can say that, but you're kind of screwed because you're mm-hmm. so tightly integrated. You cannot just replace it easily. Unless you decide to maintain the code yourself, which is definitely an option. Yeah. So I'm curious if we can go back to the AWS sponsorship. How did that come about? Did they just reach out to you and say, hey, we use your tool and we really like it? Or literally, literally that. Wow. That's awesome. They just reach out to me yeah, with an email like, you know what? We want to we want to support as AWS. Uh, we use a lot of .NET tools. We want to support you. We use your tools. And can we have a call about it? And then they literally, we had a call, which was funny, by the way, because it was also the first time that I actually saw Jonas, the person that's doing the maintenance with yeah. me. And I never saw him. I only saw his picture. And obviously, his picture was older. <laughs> you know, the guy with the beard and everything it was quite funny because that was literally the first time. And he's been supporting me for the last four years. We share all the uh, sponsor uh, money that comes in. But it's really funny to have that call the first time. But the guys from AWS, they just explained, you know, the rationale behind that and they want to support the community and they plan to do kind of a yearly thing where they find a project that really significantly helped the .NET community within AWS and also explained that they didn't expect anything in return. Of course, they would love it if we would mention them and that was about it. But it was really significant for us. I mean, we had some sponsors, but it's not, it's, it's nothing. Like three, four sponsors. That's about it. So they, I was expecting. They didn't ask for any features okay. or anything like that. That they nothing they were interested mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. Oh, nothing in nice. return. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think it would take, or can you see other big companies starting to do this more often? Right, charity is not the right word. Right, but supporting tools that they want to see continue to be available in open source. 
Yeah, that's the thing. It doesn't take much. I mean, mm. what I feel is that most companies, the people that benefit from the tools are not mm. the people that make decisions about money. Mm. You know, as I said, right. I, I can literally spend more time on my hourly rate to try to, to convince people to give me a, a license for a tool that take, that costs $50. So AWS purposely or, or explicitly made a decision to do that, probably at the right level. So, But developers, they love the tools, but they're not the ones to say where the money goes to. Right. That's the thing. I mean, honestly, yeah. I know that Microsoft is using Fluid Assertions in their SDK, but even in .NET Core. As you, I know they use it heavily. So uh, you would expect that at some point Microsoft would also do something about that. Let us know that they value this. And of course, they do individual developers do that on Twitter, not as a company. So I think it's every company should actually, I was thinking about this like last week, every company should have some people that are in charge of this or every company should reserve some budget to mm. thank the people that build all their stuff because they get it for free. And as the developers mm. have to build themselves, it's a lot of work. There's a lot of experience in there. I mean, it's the bug fixing, the edge cases that nobody thinks about. It's the collaborative experience of all the people that are using a library or component that makes it reliable, rock solid, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. What do you What do you think about uh, like something like Patreon for people for the open source developers using that? So if people want to just kind of donate and help out that way, they can use go that route. Yeah, I have it as well. It's not working. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> at least it's not for me yeah. i know it's i i saw actually how it how it helped the few js developer you mm -hmm. know who's making quite some money with it he basically gave up his day job that was my trigger to also create a patreon account but then yeah there's a lot of features in there i for a library like food insertion doesn't really make sense like yeah you can get early features or something like that but right the code is an open it's on github you can see exactly what i'm doing yeah i could create a private repo and not expose it but yeah Again, it's a developer. Yes, the developer may want to have the feature, but paying for it, probably too much. Yeah. So, no, I get it. Yeah. And so I it's an attitude thing. That, well, I was going to say, I don't know that uh, the Patreon was developed for developers, right? It's for comics or videos or games, right? And like you said, there are some people that make a lot of money through that, but it's, I think it's more, more geared towards the entertainment space, right? Probably, yeah. Yeah. So In influencers on Instagram or something or TikTok, mm. they probably refer to, to Patreon. Yeah, true, true. But the funny thing is there's so many different ways to sponsor a project. That's mm. not the issue then. So we have GitHub sponsors, which is very nice to work with. Mm. And you have Patreon. You can you can buy people coffee. Like uh, you spell right, it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I that, just saw that, that happened a couple of times. Yeah, yeah and, and also we have all the links very clearly on the uh, landing page. PayPal even. So in the past, sometimes I got a PayPal donation yeah. or a couple of coffees. Yeah, but the regular GitHub's KO-FI. That's kind of funny. <laughs> I yeah, KO-FI. Coffee, right. coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's still, so there's plenty of opportunities. So either it's the the mentality the companies don't want to pay, or it's the individual developers that I don't know they don't want to do it or something. Hmm. It's, I don't I don't know. It's, it's a thing. And honestly, even if you would, I don't know. I haven't checked this. The guy from FugeS. Let me let's see what he actually has these days. Patreon. Let's see what he Evan Evan is is called. Oh yeah, he and created he shows Vue. yeah yes. actual Vue three. Yeah, like it's it's yeah, not an extension of FugeS. It's actually Vue. Gotcha. Yeah, I forget his last name. But you're right, Evan. Yeah. Oh, actually, it doesn't even mention anymore the what he what he actually. Ah, oh, he moved to GitHub sponsors. Okay, that's why. Because yeah. the last time I checked, it was like fifteen thousand dollars a month. 
that's enough to stop your day job. But funny thing, even if I would get that kind of money, I wouldn't stop my day job because I love helping my clients. But yeah, it would enable a lot of things that you cannot do right now. Yep. Now yep. it's just, it's small. It's, it's, enough, it's more than enough to get some licenses here and there, like software licenses. But I guess in that case, that sense that the free licenses that we get from JetBrains, JetBrains gives us all the, the tools for free. Mm. So uh, I'm talking about the uh, Japanese Rider and, and Dot Trace and those tools like that, mm. uh, or Semantic Merge. That is actually maybe even more valuable because I can use the tools. But still, it is very valuable because it helps me explain to my wife why I spend so much time on this library. <laughs> right? Yeah, because it does cost you a lot of time. Absolutely. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Are there any other open source projects that you're involved in or? Or just food assertions? No, I have a smaller, a different library called Chill, which is more like a BDD style uh, .NET library that puts your, your unit test more in a given when then construct. Of course, it's not comparable to Fluent Surgeon compared in, in the sense of popularity. I have a bunch of libraries built around event sourcing. That's one of the architecture styles that I have a lot of experience with. It's called Liquid Projections. It's for building projection code in the, in the event sourcing architecture. That's kind of feature complete, so it doesn't take me that much time. And it's really built as a library, so little pieces of code that you can combine. It's a pretty high learning curve, but uh, it's very useful. So it's mostly for the search that spend on time and my coding guidelines. So I've been maintaining C-sharp coding guidelines for the last 20 years. Last couple of years, it's a GitHub website or a, a, yeah, a GitHub website that you can clone. If you want to have your own uh, coding guidelines, then you can clone them by cloning the repo. You get a bunch of markdown files. And those libra- those are usually guidelines that cannot really be automated. It's not like Sonocube can cover them or Rustland. There's a guy, Bart, that has written uh, a Rustland analyzer to cover some of those guidelines. That's kind of fun. Doesn't take me that much time. But yeah, so all in all, and of course, my own blog, uh, my own blog, of course, but I've been so busy with Fluent Associations the last couple of weeks and the conferences that I'm struggling to find enough time because, yeah, as I said, I still have a family and I do like to do play games once in a while. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's busy. I'm also a coach for my kids' handball team. I'm the treasurer mm-hmm. for the handball club. So I have a lot of uh, other things that I do. And I need to watch TV series with my wife, you know, and play with the kids. So, yeah. yeah. So what are what are some of the most important lessons that you learned along the way? You know, with with your open source project, do you if somebody wants to to start one, do you just recommend that they put it out there and let it just kind of grow organically, just by people word of mouth and things like that, or are there ways that they can kind of promote it so it does? have a better chance of catching on. I don't know the secret here. What I've done is I started using it. I started to use it during presentations to support a certain story. Because in the end, you create an open source project because you solve or you're trying to solve a problem that you have yourself. Usually that's how it started. 
So when I did presentations about, for example, test-driven development, I used those examples. If I talked about clean code, then I used that in examples. I tweet about it. I blog about it. It's just repeating it over and over again. And I think at some point, the people started to... I mean, if you don't know that it exists, there's so much open source in the world. If you don't know it exists, how do you know you're missing something? You know, that's the thing. But yeah, it's just repeating. I don't even remember. I mean, again, it took me 12 years to get to this point. So that, that's important to realize. I didn't care. I didn't do plural sites. I haven't done that. I don't. I've, I think it's too much, too big of an investment. It's just repeating, repeating, showing examples. I remember putting out some examples on Twitter, like where I was rewriting a X unit assertion with fluent assertions and showing that. And if you have sufficient Twitterful, I don't have that many, like 3K. People will pick it up, I suppose, at some point. But if, for example, if I look at my other libraries, I haven't checked for a while. Let's see, chill, BDD. We've had a number of shows on live streaming. Do you ever do any of that when you're working on no, food research? No, no. Like doing what? Showing them what, I, what it works like? Or? <laughs> yeah, some like, people like actually enjoy Mark watching. Mark Miller, for yeah. instance, he, he Twitch streams two, three times a week. And oh, really? He basically just codes, and he codes with like a co-worker, and they're working on this app. And they'll, they'll show how Code Rush works and how it's, so it's ties in with his job, but it's also a community thing, right? He's got people that are regulars and they pop in and they'll be making suggestions or ask questions. Yeah. It's, it's interesting stuff. I have not considered that. My first response is that sounds like a pretty big commitment to do that. Yeah. Cause the funny thing is, yeah, I mean, I'm also sitting down and, in the living room next to my wife, watching TV with one eye and on my laptop with another okay. one, actually okay. going upstairs, like now to be here for the, uh, that, that's a different thing because again, I'm upstairs all day long. So I don't want to be, I don't want to be gone all the time. So doing anything that doesn't require me to speak or listen is pretty easy. I also have a machine in the living room in a corner where I can do some developing. But it's interesting. I should actually ask around, like, would people be interested in that? Like me using writers, one of my favorite IDEs, uh, together with fluid assertions, showing them how I'm actually implementing a feature. Yeah, I bet you'll get a lot of responses, you know, because it doesn't really take, you know, a commitment to a certain schedule or anything like that. Because if they follow you, they'll get notified whenever you pop on and you're you're streaming. So then people can jump on and, and watch and, and oh, give you comments and things like that. Yeah. So I, I don't even have a Twitch account, so uh, that's a start. That's actually a pretty nice idea. I should consider that, yeah. Yeah. I could I could reserve some time and uh, work on fluent assertions, work on a new feature and show people how I think and how I do and what I do and what are the principles that I apply. And you know what okay. else Mark does is that he doesn't do this regularly, but right as he records his Twitch streams, he actually, he gets the recordings himself. And so every month or so, he actually uploads them all to YouTube. And so you can go back and watch the Twitch streams whenever you want, right? And I yeah. think he's got, you know, 10 or 15,000 YouTube subscribers, which is another oh. way to possibly, you know, I don't, I don't think he does. He doesn't do any ads or anything, but you know, that, that's another avenue. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, not bad. I'm actually going to consider that. I'm, uh, the longer I think about it, I, I get kind of inspired to do that. I mean, my son, yeah. I'm at, yeah. He's got 2000 followers on his Twitch stream and often he's on there about, it looks like average about two to three hours at a time. So, and just yeah. coding away. Yeah, he probably do, does it. He's got 627 yeah. episodes out there so far. So, wow. He loves it. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's his job, of course, which helps. Huh? Yeah. But it's good because he's also not a, he's not very young. So he's actually been, you know, going along and uh, evolving mm -hmm. with the uh, the community. Yeah. It's my 10 year old. Oh, absolutely. He loves to do YouTube. He wants to do, he's trying to find all kinds of opportunities 
to do stuff on YouTube and he wants to do Twitch. He wants to do all of that stuff, you know? Yeah. He was even doing, doing Twitch when he was in Costa Rica, I think. So even those yeah. crappy connections that he was on there and, yeah. and uh, portable power supplies. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So take a look. I at like it. it. Yeah. Yeah. You'll you have to I let like us it. know yeah. if you end up uh, setting it up. <laughs> we'll have to come take a look. Yep. You mean the equipment and everything? No, your stream. So if you if you do ah. make a, if you make a channel and uh, yeah, we'll check it out and ah, yeah, listeners yeah. know. And once we hear about it, we'll uh, cool. We'll let them know. That yeah, I'll start. Yeah. I have holiday the next two weeks, so maybe I should actually think about it a little bit. But that means I have to balance my time between coding, blogging. I need to right. write an article, um, right. uh, <laughs> playing games, taking my kids outside, and it's summer. Which is usually not the best time. I try to be as much outside as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, I have something else to put on my plate. There you go. <laughs> See, this is it. You learn something new every day. Every day. That's my mantra. I just want to be better today than I was yesterday, and better tomorrow than I am today. You can, That's yeah. Good. At some point, it will stop. You will stop doing that, I guess. But I hope uh, all of us can do that for a long. By the way, that's actually also why I call my blog the Continuous Improver. Because I am actually looking for stuff that makes me better every day. That's, that's what drives me here. Uh, you mentioned the BDD, and that was kind of uh, ironic to me because this, this past couple of weeks, I've been looking at automated testing tools, and I've been looking at Playwright. So I don't know if you're familiar with Playwright. Yeah. It's the Microsoft uh, end-to-end testing tool. And I saw that, it's, yeah. It's, I really like that, but I was also looking at some BDD stuff at the time, and I really didn't see what value BDD was going to bring to me, you know, as a development and the other developers on the team. It seems like BDD is more for users or designers to kind of give you stuff and then turn that into your, give that to the developers to then make tests and so on and so forth. Am I right on that? That's true. No, that's absolutely true. BDD is actually coming more from the business development and uh, trying to capture requirements in an executable way. What I have created, and I kind of, I didn't create it myself, somebody else created it and I kind of took it further, is more like a BDD style framework. So it's basically for .NET unit test where you want to, in general, you have two types of tests. You have the state-based testing where you basically have a simple range act assert. I literally also use the comments like range act assert where you stop, you put an object in a particular state, you call a method or property or something on it, and then you verify its state afterwards. But you also have code that is more interactive by nature. And usually that interactive code also requires some setup code. You need to dispose some things at the end if it's a .NET based thing. And chill is is kind of, yeah, it kind of tries to, to force you in that structure, but take takes care of anything you create in your your given phase is automatically disposed at the end of the test. It's nice, but yeah, I mean, I just checked. It has like 200K downloads. That's, of course, negligible compared to Fluent Assertion. Still more than I expected. Yeah, check it out. I'll, uh, we'll put it in the show notes, show notes, I suppose, yeah. yeah. So BDD is the business developer writing what the test should mm-hmm. do. You know, How is that different really than just writing a user story? It's because they want you to write it in an executable way. I think one of the most well-known examples is the specification by example article or a book uh, by Gojo Asik, if I pronounced correctly. Mm. And the idea or the premise behind is that you can specify it to such a way. I mean, if you used Cucumber, a Gherkin language, that's mm-hmm. that's really BDD style. Okay. Although a lot of people were, were using it for end user or end of uh, UI automation. 
mm-hmm. which doesn't seem to really work. I've seen many projects fail doing that. In this case, it's just it's more like the style of BDD, the given when then construct. There's a couple of other libraries left. You have MSpec, machine specifications, and a couple of other. It's just a way to structure to give your your automated test a bit more structure and okay. .NET. Yeah? It keeps it a bit clean because you know if you write unit test or automated test, I like to make it very clear that I make an effort to make it the cause and effect very clear. Like this is the starting situation. This is what we did. I really try to make sure the test is self-explanatory by giving it a pure or good functional name, but also by making sure that the things which are important for that test case are displayed, are visible, and anything else is moved to moved to uh, moved aside. So using patterns like test data builder or object model that can help you. But in .NET, you usually also have to do things like dispose and pass around objects at the right time. So it has a little uh, dependency injection container behind that that cleans or allows you to create your test in a more clean way. If for the listeners that are interested, just check out the website. There's some nice examples uh, on it. All right. Yeah. Okay, good. I think we're just about out of time, but uh, is there anything oh, else already? you wanted to, to go over, Dennis? Oh, uh, no. Actually, I think we covered already a lot of ground. I didn't even notice that it's already an hour. Yeah, yeah. I can plug Fluent Assertions that yeah, if you love this library, then uh, please uh, support us by uh, supporting us through uh, GitHub sponsors, PayPal, Patreon, uh, or just buy us a coffee. We'll make us happy and our wives as well. There you go. There we go. Okay. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So I think we'll move on to picks then. Caleb, what's your pick this week? So my pick is a PC game. It's called The Last Epoch, and it's an ARPG in the same vein as Path of Exile or Diablo. And they've been it's been in development for several years. And it's been an early access on Steam. And I've been tracking it for a while. And they just, they're like it. They're almost to 0.9. So they're almost to version one. Uh, they've made a lot of progress. And I decided to go and pick it up because it's on sale at Steam for the moment. It might not be when this releases, but it was at the moment. And so I've been playing a little bit and had a lot of fun. It's uh, bringing back good Diablo memories. They got some cool classes. So uh, Last Epoch is my pick. All right. Nice. And I see they're actually... Uh might actually be a release date for Diablo 4. So ah, we're working on that. You know, you probably, go. I'm guessing, yeah. next year sometime. But still, that's something, I guess, that they're shooting for. So that's better than what they've had in the past couple yeah. of years. So. Diablo. Yep. I still remember the music from it. Yeah. Wow. Well, I was going to say, uh, I certainly hope Diablo 4 is better than Diablo Immortal. But I'm not going to open that can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> I've only, yeah. is it three? Is the three the one that was so popular in the 90s or 80s? I don't even two, remember exactly. Two was, was the most popular, and they uh, actually even did a re-release on it. They they re- made a new version remastered. and updated all the graphics yeah. and things like that. So, And that was just like last year, I think, is when they oh, re-released wow. Diablo 2. And then I've been playing Diablo 3 a little bit. I've downloaded and read about Diablo Immortal and uh, all the stuff you have to pay for now. And they're saying with Diablo 4, right. pay stuff is just going to be cosmetic, but we'll wait and see. We'll see. Yep. I would be afraid that it is a disappointment. Like the, the memories that you have from the past are actually oh, right. not as great as the, as the yeah, that's kind of my my anxiety. I did play Half-Life 2. No, I actually played Black Mesa, Black Mesa, which is the, the what is it, the remastered version, yeah. which was really impressive after 20 years. And then I played Half-Life 2, which really could, what is it, hold the test of time. It's still an awesome game. 
But anything else, I would be just afraid it disappoints my memory of it, my childhood. <laughs> yeah. All right. So my pick this week is going to be a little different. I, I tend to pick a lot of movies and shows and things like mm. that because that's a, what I do the most. But this summer, I picked up a new Lawn Aerator and Dethatcher by Ryobi. And okay. I've had a corded one for, for Craftsman for a number of years. And finally, Ryobi came up with one that's battery operated. So it's so much easier. I can just grab the, the batteries that I normally use for my, for my uh, drills and things like that and just throw it in this thing. It comes with a couple, but now I have a whole bunch of different batteries that I can use this and do it the whole yard. It was out in Europe for quite a while before they, they brought it to the U.S. Just the U.S. version just came out a couple months ago, but it was in Europe last year and so on. So the Ryobi Lawn Aerator and the Thatcher. It's actually more of a uh, scarifier, if you know what that is, versus an aerator. It kind of cuts little slits in the yard. Oh, of, it's uh, a lawnmower. So <sighs> if you want something yeah. that's, that's corded, or not corded, yeah, so battery operated, easy to just run around the lawn. The bag is worthless on it. Do not even try to use the bag. <laughs> so, so run it around and and then rake it up or run your lawnmower over the stuff after you've done this. So check out this tool. Ah, yeah, I had to look it up because yeah. I had no clue what you were talking about. Yeah, but now so, I know. <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm right now. It only they only have a version that comes with batteries, and they typically have at some point a version that's without batteries and a version that's with batteries. So the one without batteries will probably be half the price. Right. Cool. All right. right, Dennis, what do you have for a pick? Yeah. So actually, I thought I had to pick three. I'm not sure if that was true or not. One, two, three. Um, That's cool. Uh, Half a minute. Well, (laughs) no, no, no. no. I actually want to emphasize a little .NET library, which I've been starting to (laughs) fall in love with the last couple of months or last, last year or so. It's called Nuke, which is a .NET yeah. C-sharp-based build system. And uh, I've used Sake, which is PowerShell, and something called Cake, which is C-sharp, but not really. And it's just a build tool, but I really love to make the entire build, or the whole script that you know compiles, builds, runs tests, and everything, make it part of source control. And Nuke is a very nice library that allows you, that creates a bit of a little project, C-sharp project, to your solution and allows you to automate the entire build process in C-sharp. It's real C-sharp. You know, it does dependency mm-hmm. management. It can even create a visual representation. It's created by uh, uh, Matthias Koch from Germany. I actually had some drinks this week with him. And yeah, it's just a tool. I mean, who cares? But if you start using it, it feels like, wow, how, how incredible can something simple like this be? How much will fail you? So I'm actually using it for everything. Whenever a repo needs some kind of automation, so you can set up your environments or do something like that, I do that using Nuke. If you use yeah. Cake, there's a converter, and you will never look back. You're wondering, like, why did I never use this before? <laughs> we'll share the show notes. Cool. I already mentioned Rider. I still see people using Visual Studio. I honestly don't get that. I mean, I know people that be using Resharper and abandoned it because it was such a memory hog on Visual Studio. Just go to JetBrains Rider. Yes, I'm sponsored by them, but it's just, I, I, I have tried Visual Studio a couple of times over the last two years. It's incredible how much productivity you're, you're gaining or you're losing if you just use Visual Studio and not Rider. So I haven't used Visual Studio officially for the last three years. Yeah, and the last one, which is nothing to do with coding, but I actually, one of the, the games, I mean, as I said, Half-Life is one of my favorites all time in my entire life. I always remember it. I will never forget about it. I hope they make a movie out of it, and I hope they use the actor from Breaking Bad for that. But I've actually fallen in love with uh, Rise and Zero Dawn. 
It's a beautiful game. I've already played oh, it twice, yeah. uh, twice during the COVID times. I'm a PC gamer, so I really hope that they will move the Forbidden West to the PC as well. Uh, in fact, if I even only listen to the Spotify uh, soundtrack of the game, I already want to play it again. But I found out that they actually have Legos now. And if anybody played the game, they have this tall neck, which is like a huge metal shiraf with a disc on the top. You can actually buy that as a Lego. And that is really mm-hmm. awesome. I'm definitely going to ask that for my uh, birthday for my kids or something like that. So Horizon Zero Dawn is the first one, right? They've come out with the second one, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. Forbidden West. Have you have yes. you tried it? No, I don't have. A, I have a PC. I don't have a PlayStation. Oh, it's not on PC yet. Okay. All right. Yeah, no, sense. I would buy it immediately. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what it is. The game is so incredibly beautiful. The music, as I said, if I listen to the music in the car, because I like, you know, trance and ambient music, I just want to play it again. Almost like with The Witcher. I played The Witcher 3 oh, uh, yeah. last year. I'm a completionist. Mm-hmm. I spent 150 hours on it. And uh, and I already played The Rise of Zero Dawn twice in two years' time, which says something because, yeah, I have kids and all the other hobbies that we just talked about. Right. It's beautiful. And now I can buy Legos. I can build it together with my son. That's awesome. awesome. And Legos is from Netherlands, right? No, it's from Denmark. Denmark. Okay. Denmark. But it's it's still Europe. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But, you know, here's the funny thing. Right, even as uh, Americans get stuff wrong, I said I said shamans in Oregon, and he's like, no, and I'm like, well, you're up in the northwest, right? I mean, it's you know, it's all the same. Right? <laughs> That's funny. I mean, in the mm-hmm. Netherlands, which is a tiny, tiny country compared to the United States, it's the same thing. People that live on the west of the country, they treat everything like which is. On the east, which is about 200 kilometers, just imagine, it's like 150 mm. miles. Like yeah. halfway, anything beyond 75 miles doesn't exist. It's like, you know, <laughs> countryside or anything like that. It's so it's so weird. The French do it as well. Anybody who lives outside Paris and doesn't live in Saint-Tropez, which is, of course, really well known, everybody's backwards. That's what the Parisians think, at least some of them. Mm. I actually don't know if it's true, but that's the rumor I heard. That's how brain works. Humans, yep. Yes. <laughs> All right. People are people. Right. So, Dennis, if uh, listeners have questions and they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? They can send me a tweet on dduman. They can email me or basically go to fluentassertion.com and there you can find all the information that you need. Very cool. Uh, what's interesting though is that the Fluent Assertion Slack also has a couple of channels about designing and testing, making things testable, which is more generic, mm-hmm. which is also nice because you can join and talk a little bit about how, how to make things more testable, how to refactor your automated tests so that they become more readable or understandable. So I kind of use that as well. Cool. All right. Good deal. And if our listeners want to get in touch with the show, we'd love to hear from you. I am on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. Dun, 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 dun. And I'm at Caleb Wells Coach. All right. Great show, everybody. We'll catch everybody else on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.